My name is Raj Sundar, and I'm a family medicine physician in Seattle, Washington. In this essay, I argue that virtual strategies for healthcare visits during the COVID-19 pandemic must not exclude marginalized patients. In January 2020, my clinic decided to invest quality improvement resources to address racial disparities in health outcomes in our service area of South King County in Washington State. I was excited to embark on this journey, despite all the typical fear and trepidation accompanying any change initiative. We had completed an ethnography of our community and now had access to all clinical measures and outcomes filtered by race, ethnicity, and language. Predictably, the data show disparities in outcomes. Our non-white, non-English speaking patients were less likely to be up to date on their cancer screenings or have their chronic conditions controlled. We knew where we were falling short, who we were letting down. It was time to undo these systems of inequities. We were on the crux of launching a new change initiative with the goal of creating urgency, inspiring action, and building commitment to improve the care we provide to our patients of color. On February 29th, the night before a meeting to launch the campaign, we received an email from our leadership. Due to the COVID-19 crisis, we will cancel this meeting for a Q&A session regarding COVID-19. The first U.S. death related to COVID-19 had occurred in Washington. In its wake, we were suspending our equity work around primary care quality measures. By March 5th, we had created incident command centers throughout the state to provide organizational leaders with real-time data about COVID-19 testing and available resources. On that same day, we created a care management team and tools to code, document, and track all patients under investigation for the disease. By March 11th, we had converted nearly all prescriptions to mail order and had made same-day delivery for acute medications readily available. On March 15th, we canceled all elective surgeries. On March 16th, we decided to preserve our personal protective equipment and protect our healthcare workers and patients on a virtual first strategy. On March 18th, we enacted it. Under the new strategy, the digital front doors became the first line of defense. Algorithmic e-visits for basic complaints, exclusive telephone and video visits with all primary care physicians, a consulting nurse available by telephone 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and around-the-clock access to an instant messaging service that connected patients directly to a provider. We ensure that only the most essential and urgent needs would be seen in face-to-face -face visits. By March 20th, merely two days later, we were providing 87.8% of our primary care virtually, compared with 14% previously, and 74% of our specialty care virtually, compared with 8% previously for our nearly 700,000 patients. With a common enemy in COVID-19, we had brought together an entire organization and within weeks had transformed the way we deliver care. As a primary care physician, I found the pace of change dizzying. I reacted to organizational changes as quickly as I could. Caring for patients over the telephone and via chat, I frantically reviewed the constantly morphing guidelines to understand who to test and how long individuals should be quarantined I will be concluding a telephone visit by carefully telling a patient that they do not meet criteria for testing as their fever was not greater than 101.4 degrees when I would receive an email update stating that the new criteria for fever was above 100.4 degrees. I was pushing the boundaries of what types of clinical care could be provided virtually while managing the anger, anxiety, and fear of my patients. For every encounter, I knew we were saving a mask and breaking the chain of the spread of the pandemic. Virtual first was working, but I was exhausted. I had lost my energy to think about anything other than COVID-19. 
Our equity initiative seemed to be a memory of a distant past. Then, as I was finishing one of my virtual shifts one evening, I received a message from a colleague. I just received a call from your patient's care manager, he texted. She's COVID-19 positive and has locked herself in a storage unit with nowhere to go. What can we do? It was one of my Spanish-speaking patients. I vaguely recalled a note copied to me from an outside emergency department. I sorted through my inbox to find the note. The plan was brief. 46-year-old female who presents to the ED with complaints of fever, cough, and shortness of breath. She's afebrile here, not in respiratory distress or hypoxic. Chest x-ray shows diffuse interstitial opacities. Her findings are concerning for COVID-19 infection. She also has a high-risk immunocompromising condition. We'll send test. Discharge home in stable condition with return precautions. Then, an addendum by a pharmacist followed. COVID-19 positive. Called using interpreter. Patient expressed understanding. Routine procedures will be followed. That was it. Using an interpreter, I called the patient's cell phone. And through her tears, she said she was scared. She didn't know much about the virus, other than it was dangerous, other than it might kill her and her family. She was told to self-quarantine, but she lived with eight other people. She didn't know where else to go, except for a storage unit she had access to. Without food, she didn't know how long she would last. She didn't have a smartphone. Her phone could only text and make calls. She didn't know that she could have made a phone visit with us to determine next steps. Our website was mostly in English, which she couldn't understand. Only because of a routine call made by my patient's case manager to ensure that she had enough medications was her situation discovered. It became clear that our virtual first strategy was neither available nor accessible to my patient. In fact, it wasn't accessible to anyone who didn't have reliable internet access, didn't have the right technology, or didn't have their digital literacy to sign up for our virtual platform. Although I may have forgotten about our equity work, our patients could not forget about the persistent inequity present in their lives. Our team connected with a social worker on call. Luckily, King County recently had transformed a hotel to a quarantine site. After several phone calls, long conversations, and hours of coordination, the woman was picked up from the storage facility by the health department and transported to the quarantine site where she could recover safely from her illness. We had helped her get connected eventually, but what about others who had trouble understanding where and who to turn to if they tested positive for the virus? We could have planned and responded to COVID-19 differently to ensure equity was not forgotten. Our organization has an equity decision-making framework, as most organizations do, but we needed to ensure that every leader and decision-maker in our organization was trained to use it appropriately and that it was applied in all decisions. If we had applied our internal equity framework in that way, the intervention and implementation could have looked very different. First, we could have more clearly communicated the reason for the intervention to all of our patients with limited English proficiency to protect our patients and healthcare workers from COVID-19 and still ensure that patients receive the care they needed. Second, we could have identified and measured the current inequities among marginalized populations that may be exacerbated by the intervention. Such an analysis could have revealed that patients with limited English proficiency disproportionately did not have either access to their patient portal or consistent access to email. Third, we could have engaged the affected populations and communities proactively by calling high-risk patients with limited English proficiency, engaging our patient advisory councils, and partnering with community health boards, such as the Latinx Health Board, to identify alternate solutions and further clarify key barriers. 
Fourth, we could have created and implemented an alternative that would have led to more equitable results. For instance, we could have made a temporary exception to use native smartphone tools such as FaceTime, which are more easily accessed by patients with limited English proficiency. We could have sent a text message to these patients in their native languages and created a dedicated telephone line to clarify our changing approach to care. Fifth, we could have taken responsibility to work with community organizations to address the root causes of inequity in digital access. We might not be able to undo existing disparities in times of crisis, but we could commit to a long-term plan to address problems. Then, we could have remained accountable to the populations and communities affected by sharing our plan and our progress. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues, communities outside the dominant culture and language are being neglected in our crisis response. We do not have ill intentions. We responded to a crisis by creating solutions that were accessible to most members. This is how many innovations and change initiatives are designed. In a time of urgency and limited resources, it seems practical to respond swiftly and devise solutions for the majority, then modify for the rest. This approach, however, often leads to the creation of interventions that exclude low-income, marginalized communities. So not only are these communities at high risk of suffering disproportionately from COVID-19, but they also are at high risk of not being able to receive care safely and virtually. This situation implores us to ask, instead of designing for the majority and adapting later, is it possible to tailor for the minority from the beginning? During this crisis, equity can't take a backseat. It needs to be centered for the sake of our interconnected humanity. It's time to build relationships and strategize to ensure that all information that's created about COVID-19 is offered in multiple languages, technological solutions are designed for universal accessibility, information is disseminated through trusted venues, and collaboration with community-based organizations is prioritized as part of any initiative. We will get through this together and we will have a story to tell. I hope it's not just a story of persistence and survival, but also a story of unity.